Daniel chapter 8. And this week, as I was doing my preparation for this, I'm going to give you a little bit of a heads up because some of you are going to go, what is this all about? And it's going to, those of you who have gone through college, you're going to go, this is going to feel a little bit like a, a college lecture hall for a little bit because you're going to get a good uh, chunk of history. History that you might not find overtly in Scripture itself, but I think it's necessary for you to hear and understand how God works in time and in history to fulfill Scripture. So Daniel chapter 8, would you stand for the read? If you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? And uh, we're going to pray for God's blessing as we hear His Word, receive His Word, at the end, I will, after the reading of Daniel chapter 8, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and your response will be, thanks be to God. And just so you know, thanks be to God is not a bland thanks be to God. We were actually thankful to God for his word. So it's, thanks be to God. Okay? Let's pray. Father, with our Bibles now open, we pray that the Spirit may be our teacher and that you would conduct that divine dialogue whereby in the mystery of it all, through the voice of a mere man, you take up your word and by the Holy Spirit, use it in our lives to bring us to maturity, to greater understanding of the beauty and the dynamics of the gospel and how you work in time and history and how you are Lord of all. So, Lord, accomplish your purposes this morning in our lives through the reading and the receiving of Daniel chapter 8. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of Christ speaks to us like this. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first and I saw in the vision, and, I, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at Ulai, at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue, who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had, been, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could escape the ram from his power. 
Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them a little came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offerings was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of the transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground. And it will act and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking. And another one, holy one said to the other who spoke, How long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice be between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And so he came near where I stood. And when he came... I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make you know, make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the time of the end. As for the ram you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is of the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that is broken, in place of which four others rose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of his, their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fear, fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind he shall become great without warning he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken but by no human hand the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now and I Daniel was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business. 
but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you may be seated. That last, uh, that last little section, would you echo how Daniel was feeling? That uh, I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it. Many of you are going, all right, Paul, I don't understand it. Bring a little bit of clarity here. So what did I do this week? One of the things that I did this week is I, uh, instead of quickly diving into the, uh, the commentaries, I dived into the comics. Uh, the reason why is because I think nowadays, comics seem to kind of strike closer to home. If you really, uh, I subscribe to some political uh, uh, Illinois kind of uh, mail list, and I see these different comics that come in, and they kind of hit home about what we're going through as a state, where we're going through politically, what we're going through with the, the coronavirus. But you read even nationally and internationally, you look at some of the comics, they really seem to hit home. So I spent some time perusing through these comics, and I found that they were addressing how we feel during this, this strange time that we're in. And here are a few of the examples. Go ahead. You got a gentleman. He said, and now the end is near. And so I faced the final curtain. And there's his wife sitting on, on the couch. And she goes, oh, deal with it. Sports will come back eventually. Guy like, oh, woe is me. The end is here. I'm facing the curtain. Here's the next one. Liberate the states. Freedom, open the U.S. now. We're revolting in lockdown. And then who do you have? Somebody who is trying to hitch a ride, COVID-19. You're not chuckling with this one, are you? The next one. Grandpa, tell us again the story of what life was like before COVID-19. <laughs> right? Tell us again. It's kind of back to the Stone Age times. Here, here's the next one. The end is near. The guy in the background goes, optimist. <laughs> and that's kind of, uh, kind of how we feel. It's like, it's, how is this ever going to end? It's, it's kind of this prophecy, you know. Everybody's saying, oh, the end is near. And you kind of get these uh, people of doomsday kind of uh, reports that are out there. And I, I think modern prophets often prophesy about the, the end of time. And yet they disappoint us in all kinds of ways. I don't know if you remember, but a few years back, there was a man by the name of Harold Camping. Harold Camping was kind of a, a modern-day prolific kind of predictor of end times. He publicly predicted the end of the world, how it is going to come to an end, uh, as many as 12 times. 12 times based off his interpretations of biblical numerology. So he kind of was doing math. Oh, if this happens and this happens, well, obviously the end is going to come. Well, he wrote a book in 1992. He published a book ominously entitled 1994, which predicted the end of the world around sometime during that year. Perhaps his most uh, high-profile prediction was for May 21, 2011. A date that he calculated to be exactly 7,000 years after the biblical flood. Well, that date came 
and went without incident. And so what did he do? He declared his math to be off. Forgot to carry a one, forgot to carry a two, I don't know what. And he pushed the end of the world back to October 21, 2011. Welcome to um, 2020. It didn't happen. But camping isn't the only type of prophet like that. There have been all kinds of others who prophesy about the end of time. Various teachers have prophesied doomsday. And I remember growing up hearing about and watching even on TV a guy, maybe some of you will recognize the name. His name is John Hagee. Anybody ever heard of John Hagee? Okay, Rachel, why don't you throw up the, the next one? Here's, here's one of John Hagee's. You, you can do a web search on it to see it in greater detail. But this is John Hagee's uh, display of the book of Revelation, where he has everything kind of laid out in month, day, time, year, and all these pictures and trying to interpret, you know, oh, who is this and what is that? When is this going to happen exactly? And it, time and time again, these modern-day prophets got it wrong. Each doomsday comes and each doomsday passes. And it's understandable why people like me and maybe like you, we become cynical. We become cynical and go, really? And maybe we even get cynical wondering, is the Bible actually able to tell us anything about the future? Is it? After all, history is littered with people who have tried to understand uh, the prophecies of the Bible, and they have ultimately come to the end and failed. And so the question confronts us, does the Bible really tell us anything about the future? And the answer is, please say yes. The answer is yes. But can we be sure about anything that the Bible says when it comes to prophecy? Well, it's understandable that we might be cynical or we might be skeptical, skeptical about these things. And, but such attitudes are a mistake. And that is because the Christian faith, our faith, rests upon the ability of our God, not the prophets, not the pastor, but our God to say things about the future and for them to come true because of our God. And so the prophet uh, Isaiah said in uh, Isaiah chapter 46, he said this, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring who is this? God is declaring, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will, I will, I will accomplish all my purposes. So it's a warning to the prophets. You are not God. I, I set up times and seasons and people and places and things. I am the one who is actually in charge of history, not you. And so what does God say here in Isaiah 46? He says that he, his very credibility as God rests on the fact that he declares 
the end from the beginning and even things that aren't even done. And he does this from the ancient times, before the foundations of the earth were laid. God has declared and set these things in, in motion. And even more, God's credibility as God rests on the fact that he purposes things and that they happen exactly as he purposes. It's not as though God looks down the quarter of time and says, oh, humanity is going to do this, and therefore I'm going to tell them what's going to happen down the corridor of time. No, when Isaiah, when Isaiah 46 clearly claims that it is God, that God decrees, and that's why things happen, adds purposes, and that's why God knows. Our God is a God my friends, and this should bring you great comfort. And we're not even into Daniel chapter 8 yet. But our God is a God who has the power and the ability to order all things. So right now, some of you feel like this world, our political world, this pandemic, whatever you want to call it, you feel like things are out of control. But do you know what? It's not. Would you rest in that? This world is not, uh, it feels like it, but the reality is God has ordered and purposed these things. Will you trust the God, the Lord of history and time? All this is particularly important to understanding Daniel chapter 8. To this point, God has repeatedly declared and demonstrated that uh, he is the true king of the world. You've kind of heard that theme over and over as we've gone through Daniel 1 all the way through Daniel 7, that God is the true king of the world, that he is the one ruling over all of history, and that his purpose is for Babylon, for Israel, and the church, and those, his purposes will actually be accomplished. And yet, as we've seen, some of these processes are very difficult to understand. Uh, even as we look backwards into history, you got all these, these pictures of rams with horns, and you got this, this statue, and you got this thing and that thing, and you go, this is really foreign to my mind. That's why I said that a couple weeks ago, this is kind of more like science fiction. You got these gross beasts trying to represent things to help us understand. So we've here in Daniel chapter eight, God gives us both prophecy and interpretation. And in doing so, he provides his people great encouragement because he demonstrates he is actually going to demonstrate that he is the Lord of history and that he is the king of time, the one who orders all things so that he gets the glory. So for God's people, they are now languishing in exile in Babylon. And so these words should have been encouraging to their hearts. By this time, by the time of this prophecy, it was approximately 550 B.C. Here comes your history lessons. Are you ready? 550 B.C. And God's people had already been in captivity for 40 years. And that's older than many of you in this room. So imagine your entire life 
and then some, has been found in captivity. The question might have circled their hearts and their minds. The question's like this. Why did God allow the evil Babylonians to, tr to triumph over them? Why did God allow that? Or how long will their suffering continue? And has God utterly abandoned us? 40 years. Some of you can't make it through six months of pandemic. They are 40 years. Has God abandoned us? And what about God's promises about a redeemer who would come to rule, rule over them forever? What about the promises of Daniel 7 about one who is like a son of man who will receive an everlasting dominion, which will never pass away? When will that one come? So those were some of the questions circulating in their head. And these questions even echo in our heads sometimes. As people, we sometimes feel that we are in exile, that we are away from our home. We're wandering through this strange land with strange rules where we are under the rule and reign of our God. And we struggle with our doubts about God's goodness and God's power. We look at our world and we wonder, why does God allow evil to apparently triumph? Why? Why does God allow even his servants, his ministers, or Christians in other parts of the world to die for his testimony? Has God abandoned his people? And even more personally, we look at our own hearts. We look at our own lives. We look at our struggles with sin. We, we look at our addictions, our doubts, and we look at our fears, and we cry out with the Apostle Paul, what a wretched man I am. Who will ever deliver me from this body of wrath? We wonder. So texts such as Daniel 8 should encourage our hearts and give us hope. This, this close connection between prophecy and history teaches that God is the ruler. He is truly the ruler who is able to order all things and accomplish his will. He is the Lord of history. He is the king of time. That's going to be a repeated phrase. He's the Lord of history. He's the king of time. And so, Daniel chapter 8. Many Bible scholars see this chapter as kind of a key for all the visions that have gone before. It's kind of the key. kind of opens up things. Unlike Daniel 2 with the huge statue with the multiple metals or Daniel 7 with the four really strange beasts, here the animals are actually identified. God gives us through scripture names of countries and what's going to happen. And as a result, many interpreters relate these two beasts to others who have gone before. So Daniel himself even suggests that we should do so as well. You see that in the first verse of Daniel chapter 8. In the third year, the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. After that, which appeared to me, at the first. In other words, it, this is, there's a connection that is going on. Oh, this one is about that one. This connects Daniel 7 and 8 as though Daniel was saying, listen, I had, I had a strange and mysterious dream of, of Daniel 7. And there were two years later, I had a dream that seemed to connect to that first dream. 
And of course, taking on face value, Daniel 8 is equally strange and equally mysterious. It's, it's a weird section. Daniel saw himself in Susa. And Susa was this fortified city in the province of Elam. And it became a favorite kind of resort town for uh, the Medes and the Persians. It, it, it was the place that you go. It's kind of like, like us going down to Cancun or Lake Geneva. It's your resort town that you go to to relax, to enjoy the, the hot mineral baths, to enjoy to walk around and enjoy the hanging gardens. It was a place that you went to go. And Daniel was transported to the side of a canal there. And while he was there, he saw a ram with two horns. One, they were both really tall, but one was a little bit bigger than the other. And this ram somehow ran north, west, and south. And he, this, when this ram ran north, west, and south, what did it do? It conquered everything in its way. Nothing could stand before him. But then came a male goat that came from the west, running so fast that it appeared to not even touch the ground. It wasn't even touching the ground. And this goat had one large horn, and he used it to strike down this ram, breaking its two horns, and cast that ram to the ground. This goat was incre incredibly great until at the height of its strength, its horn was broken. So you, you've got yourself a ram that is down, had two large horns. He was taken down. You have this goat that was there and it was exceedingly strong. And after a while, what happened? At the height of his strength, his horn was broken. And out of uh, th that singular horn came what? More horns. Weird. This is the stuff of sci-fi. This is strange. So out of this one horn came four horns. And one of these horns became the strongest horn. You getting this picture? You almost need to draw as you, as you hear it. And it became so strong, particularly in the south, and toward the glorious land. What's the glorious land? Palestine. Jerusalem, the glorious land. And that horn became great and even challenging the prince of the host, transgressing the regular burnt offering. You know what happens in Jerusalem, right? Burnt offerings in the temple for a short space of time. And after a length of time, 2,300 days, somehow the sanctuary would be restored to its, its uh, proper use. So this vision, this dream is exceedingly weird. It's strange. And Daniel desperately wanted to know the meaning of this, this, this vision. Have you ever had that where you wake up in the morning kind of startled and go, honey, friend, I had the weirdest dream. I don't know if it was something spicy I had last night or what happened, but you immediately, I wonder what this means. This person was there, this person was there, and there was a river of hot fudge going through the city. I don't know what it means. But somehow, it's like that. Daniel wanted to know 
And it's scripture even said that he sought to understand. And God, in his mercy, shouted out. He said, Gabriel, make this man understand this vision. And this angel Gabriel came to Daniel. And this was the first of several visits that we find both in this book and throughout biblical history. So we can build a case for, uh, that there are angels and they actually have names. So there's this Gabriel and Gabriel told him the interpretation of this vision dream. And what he told Daniel about was about a future prophecy that we read, that we read as past history. So Gabriel saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. We're reading it as this has already happened. So twice, Gabriel noted that what Daniel saw was about the end. Doomsday prophets, modern day prophets love this kind of stuff. It's about the end. Understand, this is verse 17. Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Boom, boom, boom. And then back, uh, verse 19. I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indigna indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. What should we understand about the end here. Gabriel was not talking about the final end, the end of history, when God is bringing about the new heavens and the new earth. Rather, he was talking about the end of this era of exile and apparent absence of God. And so for hundreds of years, God's people knew his voice. They knew his presence. They knew his comfort. But there was a time, there would be a time after they returned from this promise to the promised land when God's people would know his silence. That time, which we call the inter intertestamental time, that was a period where a great deal happened. So the intertestamental time, it happened. What's the last book of the uh, Old Testament? Malachi. In between Malachi and Matthew is the intertestamental time. And during that time, a great deal happened. Nations were vying for pa uh, Palestine like football players were going for a football that has been fumbled. They were there like, what can we do to get, get this to be ours? They were fighting for it. And Israel would have to work to maintain their sense of identity in this rapidly, regularly changing world as all these nations are trying to vie for their piece of land. And even the temple would still be a focus of Israel's hopes, even as synagogue worship would develop. So what Gabriel said in this prophecy had to do with the end of their exile and this period of silence. And if God's people would pay attention, if they would really listen, they would know exactly what was going to happen. Because God is the Lord of history and the king of time. Because he's the one who orders all things because he rules over all things. 
And so Gabriel told Daniel that the ram represented the kings of the Medes and the Persians. That's who this this ram is. And these two kingdoms would dominate the the Middle East for 200-some years. And their rule would would just extend from modern-day India, west through Turkey, into Greece, and south through Babylon, into Palestine, Egypt, and sections of modern-day Libya. It was a huge piece of land. And just as the ram went westward and northward and southward, so the Medo-Persian Empire went, how? Westward and southward and northward. But this empire was an unstable alliance. How many horns did it have? Two, right? And what was wrong with one of them? A little higher than the other. So it was an unstable alliance. Just as one was bigger than the other in the vision, so one part of the empire, the Persian part, was stronger than the other and would come to dominate ultimately in the end. It was the Persians who would produce mighty warriors like Cyrus, Xerxes I, or Darius the Great. Here's your your history lesson. They would rule the known world as well as the glorious land. They also ruled over Palestine. Actually, the the, the Mede and Persian Empire was challenged by a power from the West. We had a goat that came in from, from the West. And Gabriel tells us that this power, typified by a goat, was Greece. After Philip of Macedon died in 336 BC, history lesson, here we go, his son, Alexander the Great, succeeded him. And this Macedonian king would consolidate his power in Greece, and in the space of 13 years, he would, 13 years, he would conquer the known world. 13 years. They did not have the technology that we did. So in 13 years, without a tank, a truck, a a missile, conquered the known world. He dominated the known world so quickly that it was apparent that he was somehow flying, not even touching the ground. It was so quick. But Alexander's power was short-lived. He died in 323 B.C. at the ripe old age of 33. And by 301 B.C., his empire was divided into what? Four districts. Four districts ruled by four families and therefore four horns. These four districts shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And that is what happened. None of these districts had the power that Alexander the Great had. None were able to consolidate their four districts into a single empire, though that did not stop some of the leaders from trying. And so the empire was ruled most of the Middle East, including Palestine, and that empire was called the Seleucid Empire. More church history, more world history. 
It, and this, the Seleucid Empire, ruled the area from 312 BC to 64 BC. That's a long time, right? And this horn, uh, this was the horn that grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, again, verse 9, of Palestine. The Seleucids were the, the most powerful of the, the various districts and would be the final one to fall to the Roman Empire. Toward the end of the Seleucid rule, according to Gabriel, the king of bold face would arise. His power shall be great. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and will and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. <laughs> this is a strong, this is the king of bold face. And this king was most likely Antichicus Epiphanes. Antichicus Epiphanes. And his name literally means the shining one the great one who ruled the Seleucids. And he had a reputation for wisdom because he delighted in and promoted Greek philosophy. He promoted Greek culture. He was a Hellenist who sought out riddles and wisdoms of the East. And Antichicus waged a nearly successful war against the Egyptians. He was that powerful. He was going far south to conquer all the Egyptians and their might and their wealth, but he was ultimately forced to withdraw. He was not strong enough. And in revenge, out of his anger, what did he do? He laid siege against Jerusalem in uh, 168 BC, which led to the massacre of a number of Jews and to the ultimately, ultimately the destruction of the city. Most notably, Antichicus ordered that all sacrifices in the temple cease. All of them are going to cease. Uh, and what did he do? In a rebuilt temple, he profaned the temple by erecting an altar to the god Zeus on top of the altar of burnt offerings. And not just that, he desecrated it in such a way by sacrificing a, what's one of the most filthy animals in the Jewish world? A pig. He desecrated it. And in doing so, Antichicus took a stand against the prince of princes, God himself, by profaning the temple and the worship of the true and living God. And God himself would hold him accountable by taking his life. Antichicus died in 164 BC as a result of a mysterious internal disease. 825 says he was broken, but by no human hand. Just as God had said would happen. All right, so you had a history session. You're ready for some, uh, some application, right? Uh, it, it's important that we understand this history because God, through Abraham, told Daniel all these things would happen at 5, 
550 BC. 550 BC, Daniel was told about all this future history that would take place. These events that were played out over the next 400 years or so happened exactly as God said. It's important because our God, who spoke worlds into existence, also spoke these things into existence long before they happened. And they happened just as he said they would. And that is important because this connection between prophecy and history should give you and me hope. We have hope because God is the Lord of history and the King of time. Because he is the Alpha and the Omega, we can trust this. We can trust that what he says he will do, he actually does. And while that is important when it comes to Darius and Cyrus and Alexander and Antichicus, this relationship between prophecy and history is especially important when it comes to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Because all throughout the Bible, God said that he would send a Redeemer. He promised he would send a Redeemer, a Messiah, a Savior, a King who would rule forever and ever. Promises were made at the earliest of days. Prophets were sent to speak in advance about this happening. And it all happened just as God said. Think back to the Old Testament, to the very beginning of the Bible. Back in Genesis 3.16, God told the serpent, his great enemy, that God would give the woman a, an offspring who would crush the serpent's head. He said that. And from the beginning of the biblical history, God's people were taught to expect an offspring from Eve who would destroy the enemy of our souls, who would set us free and make everything right again. They were taught to believe that, to trust the Lord of history and the king of time. So God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and, the pro and promises him an offspring and a land. He also promises that through Abraham and through his families, the families of the earth would be blessed. How would they be blessed, my friends? Through? Come on, through? Jesus, say it together. Jesus. You can be a little bit more Pentecostal or Baptist here. Cut it out. Come on. And so in Genesis, God continues to promise that a king would come through Jacob. He declares that it would be through Judah, a fourth-born son, but most noble, that the ruler would come and receive a scepter, and he would receive even tribute. But that's not it. It keeps on going. In Deuteronomy 18, there, would be, uh, there was going to be a prophet like Moses who would declare God's word and will perfectly. In, in uh, Psalm 110, verse 4, he would be a priest like Aaron and yet and he had an eternal lineage. Or 2 Samuel 7, he would be a king like David, but one that would rule forever. Or what about Isaiah 7? Isaiah predicted that this coming Davidic king would be virgin born, our Emmanuel, God with us. Or what about Isaiah 9? 
He would rule. He would be a child who would dare rule with a government, with a government upon his shoulders. Or what about Isaiah 11? He would be the righteous branch springing up from David's stump. Or Isaiah 42, he would be a servant who did all that Israel failed to do. Or Isaiah 53, that he would be the servant who would suffer so that God, the God wayward sinful people like you and me would be forgiven and we would be healed. Or what about Micah chapter 2? Micah told us that the promised redeemer, the promised coming one, would be born in Israel. Or Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah claimed that the king would be a king riding on a foal of a donkey. What happened on Palm Sunday? He came in riding on a foal of a donkey. Malachi, the last voice of God for 420 years or so, promised that one like Elijah would come to prepare the way. There is a... This point should be absolutely clear. Our faith rests on the fact that God said what he was going to do is actually going to happen, and it's all going to happen through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why, my friends, Daniel 7 should not be written off. It is important God is the Lord of history and the king of time. He is able to order all things to accomplish his purposes in our world and in our lives. He says that what he is going to do, he is actually able to make it happen. So what does this mean for us? It means that we are not only to have a savior in whom we trust, who is faithful and a savior who is the promised priest and king. He was designated before the foundation of the earth to do all of that for your good. It also means that our lives, in our lives, there is nothing, nothing that occurs outside of the promises of God. Do you believe that? There, there's... As R.C. Sproul, a man that is far smart, that was far smarter than me, R.C. Sproul said, there are no free molecules in the world. Molecules! There are no free molecules in the world. There's nothing that happens by accident or fortune or, or luck. And even more, Far from randomness, God orders everything in such a way that the plan he has for us is far superior to any that we could ever orchestrate ourselves. It's hard, as hard as it may seem at sometimes, as, as painful as it, as much pain as it may cause, because God is the Lord of history, and the king of time, and because he orders all things in such a way that he receives glory, and we know salvation, my friends, we can trust him. You can trust him. I come from the, the Dutch Reformed tradition, and they have, uh, in the 16th century, a beautiful uh, doctrinal standard called the Heidelberg Catechism, and the most well-known 
uh, question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism is the first one. So in the midst of uh, this glorious answer to the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The author tells us this. Jesus also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without, not a hair can fall from your head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, how many things? All. All things must work together for salvation. So if there's one thing out of God's control, if that's even possible, you cannot be saved. All things must work together for your salvation. So how is it possible to believe that? It's only possible when we realize that God is the Lord of history and the king of what? Time. That he has ordered all things for his glory and our good. That the struggles and the afflictions and the sorrows and the suffering of our lives, our purpose, all those things work together by God for our salvation. And my friends, that should give you and me hope for today and for tomorrow. Our world is not out of control. It's broken. We should long for, oh, come Lord Jesus, come. Make this world right. Let us taste your justice and your righteousness, your mercy and your grace. Come be the salve to my broken life. But none of this is out of control. For it's all working for God's glory, your good, and your salvation. And all God's people said...